It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. As more Irish people avail of cosmetic procedures and medicines, we ask if they're aware of the pros and cons. Plus, as experts warn of significant long-term health risks for children, is it time that we banned disposable vapes? And we get the latest on the $250 million civil fraud case against former US President Donald Trump. And it all comes down from the DOJ. They're totally coordinated this in Washington because I'm leading, I'm the leading candidate, I'm leading Biden by 10 points. to be worth 40 million euro by the year 2025. The public appetite for the Irish cosmetic industry has grown exponentially over the past decade. Well, here to examine the merits of availing of medications and procedures is clinical psychologist Dr Anne Kyo, cosmetic surgeon Dr Patrick Tracy, consultant bariatric surgeon Professor Helen Heenahan, and joining us down the line tonight is journalist Mary Jane O'Regan. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, I want to come to you, uh, Dr. Patrick Tracy, because you are at the forefront of this industry in the area of cosmetic surgery and procedures. Tell us about the kind of demand you're seeing now as distinct from where we were at around 10 years ago. Okay, well, in many ways, Claire, we should differentiate between cosmetic surgery and aesthetic medicine. Aesthetic medicine really has, in many ways, gone exponential. It probably is now, they reckon, running at the rate of 10.4% per year. And cosmetic surgery, in some ways, is coming back a little. I mean, it's certainly there still for, like, in Helen's field, and facelifts tend to be done now by either derma fillers or radiofrequency machines. So when you're speaking about aesthetic medicine, just to clarify, you're yeah. talking about injectables and fillers and non-surgical sure, interventions. It doesn't need, we we'll say, intubation, conscious sedation, overnight stays, intubation, anesthesis. Um, so um, even though a lot of my cosmetic work tends to be involved also with skin cancer per se, I'd be very well aware of um, the growth of the industry. We, after all, started off the first, I suppose, aesthetic medicine clinic in Ireland back 1999. And um, we would have been dealing with a lot of complications from all over the world, from Dubai, from America and everything over the years. But a lot of the um, procedures now can be reversed with hyaluronides. And may I say that Dublin was the first place in the world to use hyaluronides many years ago. And um, But now most people... Um, in aesthetic medicine can reverse a lot of the problems themselves. And how has the client base changed? It's obviously more affordable, isn't it, if, you are, if you're not opting for it surgery? It has become totally accessible. Accessible. Unfortunately, we've got a hierarchical system. It's like a triangulation upside down. So doctors and 
dentists to an extent, nurses are on the top of this, but we've got a situation, I suppose, now where um, hairdressers, people doing nail varnish, technicians, beauticians are all um, injecting. And what we're trying to do, particularly for derma fillers, is to try and make it within Europe uh, prescribable only medicine rather than the medical device. <clears throat> so if we had it the same as it is in the United States, we wouldn't be facing the deluge of problems that we're seeing oh, right. almost on a daily basis. Okay, so yeah. just to, when you say there's been a huge demand um, mm. and it, it's it's exploded really, the interest we're, in aesthetic we're medicine, across the clinics what, four what do you put ahead. that down to? Um, three factors. We'd have to take into account influencers, <clears throat> celebrities and social media. That certainly plays a big role in the problems we're seeing. There's no doubt about it that people with the best Instagram accounts tends to attract that sort of market of people. The second thing is most of the procedures are fairly safe and people can get procedures done very quickly. And as a consequence, they can look a lot better. Uh, there's no doubt about it. The problems often exist on twofold. Number one, the products that put into people's faces sometimes can cause granulation tissue down the line or nodules and they can be delayed onset almost three to six months later. And the second thing is people that don't know human anatomy very well, and they're injecting into blood vessels and causing um, dermatofibular necrosis. Okay. I, I was in London yesterday, well, on Saturday, and we had a whole um, forum on dermatofibular blindness being caused by injecting faces. There's now about 300 cases worldwide. And we've come up again with a technique how to reverse that, hopefully. All right, okay. So we've had five people reverse. presenting some of the real problems that people are seeing as a result of getting, you know, the, I suppose, procedures in, in the wrong hands. Um, yeah. I want to bring you in on this, Dr. Anko. As a clinical psychologist, if these procedures help people's confidence and their self-esteem, is that such a bad thing? I think it's, it's mixed because they do help people's self-esteem and self-image. But really how you come to understand your self-image is very influenced, as, as Dr. Trace says, around what you see. So people have sometimes a skewed version of what they should look like. And when that happens, you can have people who maybe in the extreme look for lots and lots of procedures or develop a, a kind of a condition called body dysmorphic disorder, as you saw from the programme earlier. Um, and we see, we see rates of that of about 2%, 1% to 2% in the general population. But then in those presenting to clinics, uh, say plastic surgery clinics or, or cosmetic surgery clinics, would be around 7 to 15 plus plus percent. So they are um, very unhappy and they feel that by changing or fixating on one element of their appearance, or many elements to be honest, but um, that they can feel a lot better. And oftentimes it would, the, difference, the difficulty is imperceivable. It's not a real difficulty. It's the idea that if I change this or make it look more, whatever it may be, I will feel very different about my life. And do you think that um, social media, and Patrick mentioned there about influencers and the power they have, really plays into that fear and that vulnerability or makes somebody go, that's the ideal, that's the standard I, I need to meet without seeing, I suppose, the after that maybe didn't go so well. They're just seeing all the good points of, of procedures. Well, if you think about walking down the street, you don't see, the people you see have a whole range of, you know, presentations, they look all different ways. But if you watch five or six hours of content, you'll see the same kind of presentation, the same exaggerated features, the same filters, the same everything else. So it does cause us to believe that maybe everybody looks that way or that there's some reason they should look that way. Mm -hmm. It really skews your perception of what 
kind of is, is good. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I'd like to bring uh, Mary Jane O'Regan in at this point because, Mary Jane, from your own experience, you've got, undergone many procedures. You, you, you've spoken about that. What was your, yes. your main motivation in doing so and going down uh, the cosmetic procedure route? So from my perspective, I was working in a high-end department store and I was surrounded by all these amazing cosmetics and I had very, very thin lips and I couldn't really wear the lipstick that I wanted to um, in the way that I wanted. And from a profile perspective, and I'm sure Dr. Tracy can will explain this far better than I I would be able to, but my features weren't particularly balanced. I had kind of, you know, big eyes and quite a prominent nose, but I had really, really thin lips. So I just went and had um, the first procedure that I ever had done, and this is almost 10 years ago, were uh, dermal fillers in my lips. And then I went on afterwards to get Botox. So I started at 35 you start at the age of 35 and I think we can see a yes. couple of pictures of uh, of the before um, and if you like the after, how you currently look. Yeah. There is quite a dramatic change there, uh, Mary Jane. Did you, did you worry at all when you were saying there was an imbalance to your features? Like a lot of people would have maybe big eyes and slim lips and, and that's, you know, that's just your face and, and how everyone is is unique and that's what makes them different. Did that come into it at all when you were making a, a call on it or did you just you know, really uh, strive for something that you had seen somewhere or somewhere else or something that you would really wish to look like? You know, Instagram has really only become really prevalent, I guess, in the last maybe seven or eight years. Um, I wasn't really looking to look like anybody else. I wanted to look like myself. Yes, there's a difference there, but I suppose that there's 10 years where maybe my face has slimmed down a little bit. Um, that's probably age. I'm probably sagging a little bit or whatever. But um, from my perspective, I guess I didn't want to look like anybody else. Like I wanted to look like a, just a better version of myself. I wasn't I didn't set out to, you know, decide that I wanted to look mm. like, you know, Kim Kardashian or anything like that. That wasn't my motivation. And did it um, influence it you at all? I the I suppose the ideals that are out there about how women should look? Well, Claire, if you know, I'm a plus size woman and uh, I, th there's nothing really about me that is ideal in the sense of I don't think that looks wise, I'm especially aspirational or anything like that. So, uh, so I'm, that's kind of not the dream I'm chasing. I just want to look like a fresher version of myself. I think I look like a woman in my 40s. I don't think like I'm not trying to look 20. Um, my reasons for doing it as, as a patient are because I want to look fresher, I want to look younger, and I like a bigger lip. Um, and that is simply the way it is. I'm not trying to, to, you know, to be Benjamin Button or turn back time or anything like that. I mean, I've had some some other things done as well. Yeah, like I've had a little bit you've, of filler. Um, you've had 44 treatments in total, haven't yes, you? Yes, now, bear in mind, yeah, that sounds very dramatic, but bear in mind, you get Botox three or four times a year. Sure. You get it um, every three months. So that over a nine year period, obviously. I've had um, a product called Harmony CA just injected along my jawline here. It's not a filler. Um, it's just something to kind of tighten along my jawline. 
that's because obviously my jawline is starting to sag. I'm in my mid forties. Um, and other than that, um, I had some non-surgical rhinoplasty done, but actually that's faded now completely. Um, you can't see that really anymore. Filler kind of degrades, um, and I can't feel it anymore either. That's one of the things that um, I'm sure Dr. Tracy will say as well. You can actually feel it, um, okay. in the face. But um, I I don't. Like my reasons for getting it were that I wanted to look fresher. I didn't want to look like very dramatically different. Um, and like I'm, I'm quite happy. And with you're how happy I look. with it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, great. Um, absolutely. I'd like to bring um, Helen in at this point. Um, Helen Heenan, it's a very broad industry, and you're at the, the life-changing end of it, I suppose, when we speak about the area of bariatric surgery. Um, do people? Um, I mean, you can go from one thing talking about cosmetic procedures and treatments that are really accessible now and have worked really well for the likes of Mary Jane. But do people underplay what's at stake with those bigger surgeries like bariatric surgery, gastric surgery, and put it in the same bracket as getting a filler or an injectable? Yes, they do, Claire. I think there's. I think the lines have been blurred as to certainly with regards to bariatric surgery as to what's um, aesthetic and what's a medically necessary intervention for some people who live with severe obesity uh, that has multiple complications affecting their health. Um, so bariatric surgery should only be performed for people who have complications of severe obesity. That's where, you know, there's very strict um, eligibility criteria and they're dictated by the risk profile of surgery. So though, as you mentioned, it's a life-changing surgery for people who are eligible for it and who require it. But the lines have certainly been blurred as to, um, you know, whether it's, for some, it's considered an aesthetic intervention. There's a cultural desire for thinness and people who are, you know, influenced by social media and the aesthetics they see assume that thinner is happier um, and will seek the quickest fix that they can. Um, and, and I think people are pursuing bariatric surgery quickly for, you know, where it's not indicated for them. Yeah. Um, and we, we saw that in, in the documentary that preceded mm -hmm. this programme. Sarah King um, talked about, uh, spoke to people who, who are going abroad to Turkey to get treatment. And it is, you are, I suppose, at the, at the other end of that when people mm -hmm. come home and it's all gone horribly wrong. Yes, and you know, as mentioned in the documentary, we see you know, at least two to three presentations to the emergency department in St. Vincent's University Hospital um, per week uh, of people per returning. Week. Yes, um, people, and, that, and that's not unique to St. Vincent's. That's happening in um, general surgery departments around the country. Yes, we probably see more of it given that we're the National Bariatric Surgery Centre. And taking and, up an awful lot, I suppose, of the time that you um, probably have set aside for other cases, Irish cases of people on waiting lists here. Yeah, it's not resourced here, so it it takes from the resources that are uh, intended to be to, to be um, uh, delivered towards our own patient cohorts who are awaiting vertic surgery for for many years, and it places a huge burden um, of work on many of my colleagues: radiology, gastroenterology. It costs us more than a million a year in St. Vincent's alone. Uh, something, um, Patrick, that Helen has touched on there, I suppose. What Helen's talking about as well is maybe people who wouldn't qualify for surgery here who are getting surgery that they don't actually need, even though they feel they need it. Are you seeing that in the treatments and procedures that 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 you know people are may seek from you that you feel no, you don't you don't actually you don't need that. You might want it, but you, it's not necessary. Are you seeing a change there? I suppose there's two different factors. Um, we were discussed um, body dysmorphia before. And um, certainly almost 7 to 10% of our patients are body dysmorphic. So when people come to us, there are certain red flags. Number one, if they've been to multiple doctors before, 
if they talk down doctors and they say, that guy was useless, he didn't sort me out. And we have sort of ways of checking for that. And believe it or not, um, if you can't see something perceivable that they can mm -hmm. see, um, when we look at an object, it's split into two different factors. There's the physical entity of entering your eye, and then there's the perception of what the brain does. And that includes things like anorexia and nervosa. Mm -hmm. So you can't turn around to somebody and say, I can't see that, and you can. You're just fighting with them. So as a consequence, there are things like if they're mirror checking all the time, if they get into a car and look in a mm -hmm. mirror, if they stop outside if, a shop. What if they're younger and they don't physically yeah. need it? They haven't sure. got the wrinkles, well, we, but they're looking we, we for the We certainly botox. turn them down. Do so you? body dysmorphia are people that are coming too early, we turn them down. I turned down somebody today, actually. What would you say that's typical of in your industry? Don't see it as much now as we used to. I think it's because they're going to seek out people who will do it They'll anyway, do or they will not. Yeah, and it's interesting though, isn't it? Because it comes down as well to our perception around aging. And when you mm. see, and we are seeing a growing number of young uh, mm. Irish women, that's not just Irish women, but like it's, a, it's a, probably a global trend who are seeking out treatments and, and Botox and fillers at a young age. Do you think that's something, do you think it's normal or do you think it's something we need to sort of reflect on as a society? I do think it's worth reflecting on that as a society. If you think about the messages that like we as say, who are not in our 20s and 30s, the messages we give to younger women and what we think is okay around aging. And it's wonderful to hear Dr. Tracy talk about turning people down like that in the sense of, we have to tell young people that you look absolutely beautiful the way you are, whatever that may look like, and that you don't need to look like you know, it's okay to look different. It's okay to look like yourself. It's okay to be, to age as well. Or is there something to be said for, well, if you want to get it, and I mean, you know, we are living in the modern age that there are these pressures and if it makes somebody feel better and they are not underage, then they're perfectly entitled to go and, and get treatment sh should they wish to do so. They are perfectly entitled. And I think that's the kind of the point, I suppose, of the show earlier on, the programme earlier on, is that is around who and how you make those decisions. So like for most people, they're perfectly entitled and it may make a huge difference to their self-esteem or self-image. Um, but for a small number of people who are really pursuing it beyond the realms of what's actually okay for them, or maybe dangerously, or, or seeking procedures and, and without the proper checks and balances around why do you want this? You know, what do you want? Why do you want it? And who really wants it? Yeah. Like, is it a pressure from a relationship or a friend or something else? Uh, to bring uh, Mary Jane in again on this, on, in terms of why you wanted it, you were saying you wanted to look fresher and maybe younger as well. Yes. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on ageing and how we in society, you know, uh, how comfortable we are with the prospect of ageing and getting wrinkles th and, and growing older and just being comfortable in our own skin? Is that something that you think we're increasingly uncomfortable with? Is it something you're uncomfortable with? I'm not, personally, I'm not um, particularly uncomfortable. As I said, I just want to look fresh. Um, and that to me is, I suppose, um, you know, just feeling like, you know, I could go make up free if I felt like it. Um, and just feeling like I feel good in my skin. Um, certainly, I think... Um, choosing from my perspective anyway choosing a good clinician to go to where they'll say to you no you know I'd like my lips to be a bit bigger or I'd like a little bit of cheek filler but you know the the doctor that I go to just says you know no could you potentially go now. somewhere else though as Patrick was saying if he was to turn um, if he was to turn down a client they'd just go elsewhere um well, that's you see, that is the danger. And that's that's where we need kind of tighter regulation 
a, a little bit because, you know, they might go somewhere that's, you know, where you don't have somebody that understands the nuances of body dysmorphia or something like that. I mean, for me personally, I trust my clinician and if they say no, then I'd say, okay, that's okay. I, I totally get it. And then, you know, you go away and you think about it and think, okay, that's fine. Um, younger people, you know, they're a little bit more, I suppose, I think younger people are a bit more kind of brazen or they're a bit more sort of, well, if he says no, I can, you know, I can go somewhere I else. I can shop around. You know, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, this is this is a service I want. Mm -hmm. So that's the other side you have to have to look at. But I think like like Patrick says, there, there are people that, you know, like I worked in front of house in an aesthetic clinic many years ago and, you know, you'd you'd always chat to, to the clients and the patients sure. when they came in and, and the nurse and the doctor would would always have a chat with them. And yes, they were turning down people regularly because, you know, they felt that they right. didn't need it or they felt that they couldn't meet their expectation. I think that's the most important thing okay. is that, you know, when you're having the conversation that the clinician can meet your expectation. All right. You know, OK, um, interesting and that, that you're with a clinician as well, that you trust um, and you trust their opinion. Um, Helen, finally, to come to you, you know, you're coming at it purely from a health point of view and not from the cosmetic arena. Um, do you think, you know, do you think our priorities are changing and they are getting a bit skewed and that we can kind of reset it at this point? Or, you know, uh, uh, is this just inevitable the way society is going? I think we have a responsibility to change it and uh, to differentiate aesthetic interventions from medical interventions. I certainly feel that responsibility myself and to, I think, um, as Mary Jane and everybody has said, I think it's uh, the responsibility is on clinicians, anybody who picks up a needle or a knife to guide the patient as to what is indicated for them. That's certainly the case with bariatric surgery, much, much more so um, than any aesthetic or cosmetic intervention. Um, but it's our professional duty um, and responsibility to, to, to make that change. Okay, and there we'll leave it. As we were discussing body dysmorphia, just to let you know that you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines if you want more information there. My thanks to Dr. Anne Kyo, Dr. Patrick Tracy and Dr. Helen Heenahan and to Mary Jane O'Regan as well. Now, coming up after the break, is it time that disposable vapes went up in smoke? Stay with us. 
Welcome back. A new paper by the Faculty of Paediatrics at the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland has warned that vaping among children and young people is rising at an alarming level and many are now calling for the urgent need to ban disposable vapes. Well, here to explore this further is Fianna Fáil TD Paul McAuliffe, consultant in paediatric respiratory medicine, Dr Des Cox, and GP specialising in addiction medicine, Dr Garrett McGovern. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, I want to come to you first, Des Cox, because... Um, the Faculty of Paediatrics has issued a position paper on, on vaping um, and you're worried about vaping in young people and you think that disposable vapes, they play a big part in that. Uh, why so? Yeah, uh, so it's been shown in a number of surveys that um, not only is the rate of vaping rising in adolescents and young people, mm. but also the product of choice that teenagers are now uh, buying is disposable vapes. So the ASH UK report uh, from last year showed that there was a ninefold increase in the um, use of disposable vapes by teenagers. Mm -hmm. More recently, the Northern Ireland report showed in a survey of six, 11 to 16 year olds that 85% uh, of uh, teenagers who use e-cigarettes use disposable vapes. So it's no longer that it's not, there, there is an issue that there's an alarming rate of increased vaping in teenagers and young adults. But now we're seeing this exponential rise and switching over to disposable vapes. And that's a, a, a and, and they're cheap, they're easy to buy over the counter, they cost about a fiver, and they're being bought in any petrol station. And it's it, it, it's it's becoming mm -hmm. a, you know a big big issue, not only just because of vaping, but also this new product that's been on the market the last few years. Tell us about that, because um, as a consultant in, in respiratory medicine for young people, what do we know about vaping-related harm and what evidence is there of damage that it can do to a young person specifically? They take up vaping in their you know, early teenage years or late teens. Yeah, so the, the first thing is, is that, uh, you know, the brains and the, you know, the lungs of uh, young people and below the age of 25 are still developing. So from an, an, on, a, on a brain development scale, what we're seeing is that if you become addicted to nicotine at an early age, you can have mood disorders, mental health issues, and the addiction itself uh, can lead on to, um, if you're chronically addicted to nicotine, it's been shown from the HRB report from 2020 that you have a three to five fold increase in risk of going on to use tobacco smoking. Okay, but nicotine itself um, and the damage, or specifically what vapes can do, yeah. what, what, what can they do so, in terms so the next, of from a yeah, so cardiovascular? Yeah, so the next thing is obviously uh, the lungs are still developing as a child. So what, what, what we're seeing in, in clinics and we're seeing in uh, my colleagues across paediatrics, what we're concerned about is that is that a number of children are presenting with respiratory symptoms related to the use of vapes. So they might range from cough and wheeze uh, to increase in asthma attacks. And then the long-term effects is what we're, we're, we're most concerned about is that children and, and adolescents and young people think that these products are harmless. But the, re the reality is, is that the long-term risk of chronic vaping is likely going to lead to heart and lung problems. So that's heart problems. So problems with your blood vessels later on and, and the second problem which as a respiratory concern I'd be more concerned about is these people are more likely to develop things like COPD so chronic obstructive pulmonary disease in later life and that's a big issue so it, it's never it, it, it's, it's never good for 
teenagers or non-smokers uh, to vape. Okay, I want to bring uh, Dr. Garrett McGovern in here because someone as a proponent of vaping as a tool um, to keep smokers off cigarettes. When we hear the WHO saying that vaping can lead to cardiovascular disease, and we heard from Des there saying if you expose lungs and the heart to it at a young age, then you will develop cardiovascular problems. Does that concern you? Uh, no, what concerns me is we've taken our eye off the ball with smoking. Uh, we seem to be talking about a problem with vaping. We, we've kind of conceded that we don't know what the long-term uh, effects of vaping are. We know only too well what the long-term effects of smoking are. And we know that the harms of vaping come at a fraction of the harms of smoking. So I look at this in a very, very simple way. And I've worked in hard-end uh, harm reduction services for years. You try and reduce harm, and there is a significant reduction in harm in switching from smoking combustible tobacco to uh, a, a nicotine delivery system with a vapour. So there's, there's no comparison in the harms. What about young people, though, taking up vaping as distinct from who may never take up smoking, but they're now taking up vaping <clears throat> and they're becoming addicted to vaping? I mean, isn't that something that we should also look at while looking at, at the benefits it may have for those diehard smokers moving on to an alternative and, 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 and safer, I suppose, um, addiction, if you like. Absolutely. We don't want any adolescent taking any drugs. Sadly, they do take drugs. They take drugs are a lot more harmful, I can tell you, than vaping. But we, we don't have an age restriction in this country. Uh, which, we probably won't Which is have... coming in. But what about the idea of disposable vapes and that push now to get, to get those banned? I, I mean, I, I mean, do you take issue with that? I, yes, I do, because the vast majority of people who are using disposable vapes are still smokers. There are, without a shadow of a doubt, young people using um, uh, vapes. But why are they been sold? Why, why, why do we not have proper legislation in so that there are appropriate fines for people who are uh, found selling to a minor? I mean, I'm not in any way defend, defending that practice. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, let, can I talk to you, Paul, about this? Because you're you're someone who's, who's we have this legislation coming through that many have said, yes, look, you've got ideas about limiting uh, vapes to over 18s, but there's lots of parts missing. One of them being around the area of uh, disposable vapes and flavours and that. Um, why, I imagine, if it is used as a, as a, as a as a tool, as Garrett says, to get smokers off cigarettes, um, is this an important push for government? Well, look, I think. Um both Garrett and Des uh, are experts on the health si side of things, but that increase in the use of disposable vapes also has an environmental impact. And that's certainly the approach uh, the, the, that I'm concerned about. We're, we're essentially allowing a new product onto the market, which has a more intensive use of uh, plastic, a more intensive use of electronic uh, uh, items, lithium batteries and, and, and so on. And there is an alternative to disposable vapes, and that's the rechargeable uh, vapes uh, that were available on the market. In the last eight or nine months, Anecdotally, there's been a huge increase in the litter uh, that, that are surrounded uh, disp disposable vapes. And so uh, from, my, from my perspective, from an environmental uh, point of view, it's an open and shut case as to why you would ban disposable vapes because there is an alternative uh, available. We do, we, we, we're, there's no point in us eliminating plastic straws and plastic forks. And, uh, okay, so you're coming at it from an entirely environmental point of view. Uh, yeah, but, 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 but I, would say, I would say, Claire, there, uh, Gareth is correct, and I, I think Des would agree too, we do need more regulation and the, the government publishing um, the, uh, the public health bill in May, which would ban the, the sale of them for under 18s. It hasn't uh, come in yet though, has it? Well, so it was published and approved by Cabinet in... Uh, it's been passed, but it's not. It can still, it's still legal to buy, to buy vapes if you're, if you're 13. Yeah, but, uh, and, and that is what the, what the legislation deals with. What's the with. hold up? 
Well, I, I, the legislation takes time and, 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 and the Oireachtas the has to pass all, all of the different components of it. But it's right that the government are banning the sale for under-18s and it's right that we're banning flavoured cigarettes. Well, it's you also, see, that it's, hasn't come in yet either yeah. as such because that is not part but of the either, either of those issues, Either of those issues wouldn't deal with the explosion of uh, of disposable single-use okay. single face. And that, I, that should be dealt with. I do, want, I do, though, want to look at the issue of, of flavours because we've heard, Des, from... Uh, Stephen Donnelly, that he's planned a second piece of legislation clamping down on all the flavours that are available in, in vaping shops and I suppose how they're advertised in shops as well. How concerned are you about the flavours and their appeal to, to young people? Yeah, so, I mean, this is the problem is that um, the agenda has been led by the e-cigarette manufacturing companies for the last 10 years. But what about people who work in addiction medicine like... Well, I'm, I'm saying they've had free reign to, to market and advertise these products. So why are, we have to ask the question is, why are young people uh, using these products? It's because they've been directly advertised and marketed to on social media like TikTok. So they're flavoured, they're coloured, they're, um, the flavours are, are attractive to young people. Um, that, that's, that's the In a way that cigarettes are not. Absolutely. So you you can't walk into a, a shop in Ireland and uh, uh, there's no point of display sale of cigarettes anymore. They're all just plain packaging. They're not advertised. They're not aware of these products. So so in regards to the legislation, in the I mentioned two jurisdictions like the Northern, Northern Ireland, uh, you know, and the UK, where there's been an explosion of disposable vapes. They have an age restriction already in there. It hasn't worked. It's not working. Mm -hmm. We need more regulation on these products. And that means an, uh, a ban on disposable vapes, re uh, regulation on in in, in flavours, and, and, and regulation advertising and marketing. Okay, Garrett, well, that would make it altogether more unappealing. Certainly, you'd probably agree for young people if you didn't have all the flavours. I mean, they are child-friendly. Yeah, I think my problem with the uh, flavours and the packaging, there's, there's definitely work needs to be done around the way in which they're displayed. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, I would say about flavours that... And um, what's the, what would your concerns be around that? I, they are probably, in, in, I'd have to agree, very attractive looking and, uh, uh, for, ch for children. Um, but I don't agree with banning flavours because flavours are a key component to people making a quit attempt. 70% of people want to get away from tobacco flavour. So a lot of people who use electronic cigarettes use them for flavours. I get the point about... Um, so smokers who are quitting don't yeah. want the taste of a cigarette. They want to get away from the tobacco flavour, yeah. So exactly. adults now would prefer watermelon flavour than tobacco flavour. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So for that reason, you believe that they shouldn't be outlawed? Yeah, because I, I, my worry is that if people aren't going to be able to get flavours and tobacco flavour is the only flavour open to them, there is a risk and there is evidence in some jurisdictions that uh, flavour ban has resulted in people smoking again. I don't want to see the smoke. We, we, we really have a plan in this country and we've been doing rather well, reasonably well, to get our smoking rates down. I would love to see our smoking rates at zero like New Zealand are trying to, to achieve. And I don't want to see anything get in the way of that. So, so I think we, it, all this needs to be proportionate. Of course, we want to protect young people. But also, we're taking our eye off the ball with young people and smoking. Smoking initiation in young people is still too high. And, and we're not um, talking about that anymore. Why is smoking initiation? So in the last Health, Healthy Island survey, there was a slight uptick in the number of teenage boys smoking. And I'd like to ask Gareth why he thinks that. It's because 
they're all they, there's a three to five fold that's, increased risk of that of is absolutely untrue. Des. There is no gateway well, uh, effect of electronic cigarettes. In fact, there's no gateway proven gateway theory for any any drug. Well, again, that's sorry, if the, nonsense. Well, the HRB review. Well, the HRB you know, are wrong. They're wrong. They're, they're, their research review. is completely and utterly wrong. No, I, suppose, I, just, I suppose one of the concerns though is if somebody becomes addicted to nicotine, they'll use different sources to to secure it. And one way would be vaping, but an alternative would be. Uh, combustible cigarettes yeah. and I have to say out of RCPI's report today that was the one point that struck me and as I say I, I cede the expertise to both of you gentlemen on it but I think it's a very a, a very strong argument that if somebody becomes addicted to the substance of nicotine that they're more likely to avail of it from multiple sources and that could lead to uh, an, in, an increase in, in uh, tobacco. And I have to say, everybody here on the table is 100% committed to less people smoking tobacco. Uh, and I, I, maybe perhaps the long-term studies aren't there yet, uh, but it certainly is a strong argument um, that if you become addicted to nicotine, you're more likely to secure it from multiple sources. Uh, if we look at what, say, Gareth is saying, if you get rid of flavours, then essentially, I suppose it's a de facto an e-cigarette ban, really, isn't it? Because you're, you're, you're looking at removing... Uh, the flavours, uh, you know, at the point of sale isn't as much of an appeal. Would not, you? So, would, do, do you think that that could be an issue, Paul, if you are looking to no, get no, the uh, number uh, of smokers uh, down? Look, I accept in the UK, they're actually ha the, the NHS is actually handing out uh, e-cigarettes to try and discourage people for, uh, from smoking. Do you so, think that's a good idea? Well, look, I, I do think there's a place for, for for vaping, and it's for people who are addicted to, to nicotine and, and, and to, to, to secure a reduction. So, would you like to see it on prescription? Uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't like to see it on prescription because, uh, again, it's about putting barriers in the way for people to come off tobacco. And we have to make sure that whatever regulation we put in place, we actually allow that to continue to happen. But we ha that doesn't mean that we can't take practical and important steps like, like the ban on those under 18, the ban on flavours, uh, and more transparency of what's in these what's in these. saying products. that ban isn't working, that ban on, on, on prohibiting sale to... To uh, to over 18s is just not working. Well, okay, to, to, with respect, the legislation is only published. We, we don't have yeah, in other countries. We yeah. don't have the legislation here. I mean, we yeah, need to approach about the UK. But look, let's use the example of Australia. So they're bringing in the model where people can access e-cigarettes, uh, tobacco-flavored only ones, and they can access through their pharmacist and and their GP. Is so, that a, is that a barrier? Do you think to people quitting? Well, so so the, you would the, be concerned about The biggest about issue as, as, doc, as a doctor, what we what we want to do is we want to. Um, help people quit smoking, but we want to help them with safe and proven therapies. Okay, so e-cigarettes is not a safe and proven therapy. It is. If if That's the if the product is, untrue, if, if the product is is put forward to the HPRA and is licensed for, for medicinal use, then there's there's no problem. But it's, at the moment, it's licensed as a consumer product. So until they they make that step and that leap forward, but I I, I think what we're getting confused here is that we're taking. He says we're uh, Gareth is saying we're taking you're taking our eyeball smoking. But this is all distraction techniques that the, the tobacco companies, who now own a lot of the e-cigarette companies, they, they love this. They love us all fighting amongst ourselves. The issue is, is why, is why, are, they, is the why are they... Is that the case, Gareth? Is that the case that we're, we're seeing a lot of the e-vaping, the retailers, the companies, that there is a, there's a crossover then with the... No, I don't, I don't see any crossover. I see, I see vaping as a smoking cessation tool, uh, an alternative to a what very deadly habit. Who are I don't taking see up smoking way. who may otherwise not do so, taking up vaping, who may not otherwise not do so. That <laughs> well, there. it, let, let, there's an uncomfortable truth here, isn't there? It's far, far safer than smoking. 
All right, we're out of time on that, um, but that argument, I imagine, uh, will continue while we wait for legislation to be discussed and to go through on that. And just to let you know, you can um, contact helplines um, on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. That's on smoking cessation. Um, if you need to, we will leave it there. My thanks to Des and to Gareth coming up. He's called it the single greatest witch hunt of all time. We get the latest on Donald Trump's day in court. Welcome back. A civil court case that could have a big impact on Donald Trump's real estate business kicked off in New York today. I'm joined live from New York City by U.S. correspondent Will Denislow, who has more on this. And Will, drama, of course, follows uh, Trump and he created himself. Tell us how all of this played out today, because Donald Trump's press doorstep ahead of the proceedings actually delayed matters in the courtroom, didn't they? He definitely wanted to have his day in court in more ways than one. And it was a very fiery remarks from the former president as well. He described the judge as rogue. He said New York's Attorney General Letitia James was a horror show. He reiterated claims that he's made on numerous occasions now that the Justice Department had been weaponized against him to thwart his re-election effort. And he said that this is the greatest witch hunt ever. When proceedings did finally get underway at the courthouse behind me here, in Lower Manhattan. We had the opportunity for both sides to lay out their store for a uh, trial that could last potentially a couple of months or so. The prosecution saying they, ha they uh, knew that Donald Trump had for years inflated the value of his assets to obtain favorable uh, deals and terms from lenders. We heard from Donald Trump's defense team refuting that, saying that Donald Trump was simply doing business. He had never committed fraud. So strong messages there from both legal teams. Donald Trump leaving the courthouse was also unhappy. He said, why was there no jury? Why is this just up to the judge? The judge, in fact, at the start of proceedings, answered that question very clearly. He said there is no jury in this trial because neither side had asked for one. Okay, and this is, of course, a civil case and not a, a criminal case against uh, Donald Trump. So how potentially damaging is it to the former president? Or actually, is he using all of this to his advantage as a, a part of a campaign strategy? The idea that TV cameras are on him now and he, he, he can use this uh, idea of a scam, the sham and a, a witch hunt, an orchestrated witch hunt against him uh, to appeal to his voter base. Well, we need to look at it, I think, through two lenses. First of all, the personal impact this trial could have. Prosecutors are seeking $250 million in penalties. Also the possibility that Donald Trump may never be able to run a business in New York ever again. Of course, this is a city that the Trump organization, Donald Trump himself, really made his name, where he gained notoriety around the world. So that's significant in of itself. For Democrats and for his political opponents, if the judge rules in favor, of course, they've already ruled in favor with prosecutors deeming uh, Donald Trump liable for fraud. There are a few other things that still need to be ruled on over the next few weeks. But uh, Donald Trump's political opponents may look at this trial and think, well, if Donald Trump's not even fit to run a business in New York, how on earth could he be fit to run a country? As far as Republicans, Donald Trump's supporters are concerned, well, we've heard directly from the former president 
once again using this as an opportunity to rev up uh, his support base and to further make that argument that the Justice Department has been weaponized against him and that is why he needs his supporters to rally around him. We've seen some signs of success from that over recent months. After each indictment that Donald Trump has faced, we've seen him go up in the polls. Okay, Will, Will Dennis Lowe joining us from New York for the very latest on proceedings taken um, against Donald Trump. Thank you for that. Pinfall TD, Paul McAuliffe, stayed on with me. You are a chair of the Oireachtas Committee looking at, at all matters US. How closely will this be watched at home? Does it matter? Well, I think uh, Donald Trump is, is kind of box office TV, no matter what side of the political debate you're on. And it's important that, like, the United States Oireachtas Group uh, have had so good support, but from both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrats, for things like the uh, Brexit negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement. I suppose part of the difficulty around Trump is you never know what you're going to get. And this trial, I think, is a, it's an interesting illustration of how he prosecutes politics. He says what he has to say to get what he, what he, what he needs to achieve. He uses that as a virtue uh, to his base, uh, and everybody else kind of uh, cowers at the kind of uh, way that he prosecutes uh, politics. Um, it's, uh, it's a very worrying development that he's back as a candidate. Um, uh, and it's for Ireland, uh, it, it's, it, there's a lot of uncertainties both here in Ireland, but also in somewhere like Ukraine. Okay, well, uh, staying with Ukraine now, um, onto matters uh, closer at home. Earlier today, Thonish the Michal Martin appeared uh, in Kyiv for a meeting of the EU Foreign Affairs Council. Take a look at this. We've engaged in a number of training with UMAM in, in respect of medical combat and in terms of demining training and uh, we have a number of other programs identified where we will, our personnel will also provide training um, and um, that, will, that will expand, yes. Uh, how significant do you think was this meeting, the Thornish they're being in Kyiv today with other EU foreign ministers, Paul? Yeah, it's a very strong statement from the European Union. They're travelling to a country that's at war in order to hold a very high-profile meeting. The security concerns around that alone, uh, I imagine, are, are, are very significant. Um, but it's also a statement that what Russia has done, invading the territorial integrity of an independent sovereign country, can't be tolerated. Uh, it's a fine line for for the European Union because we don't want to escalate the war. But at the same token, we can't cede ground uh, to a country uh, that's w been willing to, to, to breach someone's borders. And I think that's something that the Baltic countries, for example, in the European Union, Poland and many others feel very strongly about. So I think there'll be a great unity of purpose in Kiev uh, today. Is there going to be any change in, in our approach towards um, you know, helping Ukraine in this war? We've pledged about over 200 million in support um, and then accommodate more than 70,000 refugees as well in this country. Um, d does Ireland plan on stepping that up, giving more money? I mean, what's the, the, the year ahead looking like? Because this war isn't ending anytime soon. No, and like I think a lot of people in Ireland hold our neutrality very strongly, uh, but they also want to stand up to imperialism and mm. to the idea that uh, a country can be invaded. We have a lot of... Uh, a lot of understanding uh, of that. I think Ireland probably has... Is there agreement across the board within government no, on that? No, I don't think there is. And I think we probably have gone further than we have ever gone before, for example, in providing training and, uh, and so on. But I think there is a line there around uh, non-military uh, non involvement. Um, and I think Ireland will have a big part to play uh, when this war is over uh, from the humanitarian side. And I think that's where we're good. And I think that's where we have a lot of experience. OK, briefly, Paul, while I have you here, um, a poll in the Sunday Indo show 
showing that uh, Sinn Féin are sitting on a very healthy 35%, with Fianna Fáil now down on, on 17%. Uh, they must be looking like attractive coalition partners now. Well, look, the reality is, is that the current government attracts greater support than Sinn Féin in many, many polls. Sinn Féin have 35%, but it's not clear who they would form a, a, yeah. a government Although with. Fianna Fáil have half that support. I mean, is that worrying? Yeah, well, look, it, it is about returning seats. It's about securing a mandate. I think when we get to the general election, the idea that we will return to the country with full employment, with very strong social welfare programmes, with a good, uh, good taxation programme, the budget is going to be uh, really positive in many, many ways. All right, well, we'll see. We'll see about that next week, of course, um, when we have and we extensively report on that budget. My thanks to Paul and all our panellists today. Um, our programme is available, of course, as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. Uh, but from all the late team here, good night. Take care. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.